Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The year is 1991. Despite a series of financial setbacks in the creation of the first Lamborghini to compete in Formula One history, Lambo Modena has made it to the United States Grand Prix in Phoenix, Arizona to show the world what their brand new car can do. Drivers Nicola Larini, a former F3 champ and Colonia Nacella driver, and Eric Vandepol, the 1987 German touring car champion and 1990 F3000 runner-up, immediately prove that they deserve their spots on the grid. Larini manages to kick the season off with a bang and places on the grid in 17th place, only 4.35 seconds off pole position. During the race itself, driving against famed drivers such as Ayrton Senna in a McLaren, Alan Prost in a Ferrari, and future two-time Grand Prix champ Mika Hakkinen in his first F1 season, Larini held his own and ended up in seventh place albeit five laps behind winner Ayrton Senna. Lambo Modena had shown their potential, but by the end of the season, the team was gone. In this episode, we explore the famous one-season wonders of Formula One and the many reasons why they never developed past their maiden journey on the grid. From engineering failures to major credit card sponsors running out of money, to flawed designs purchased from previously successful teams, and even a team owner that gets arrested mid-race weekend Today on Past Gas, the seven one-season wonders of the world and the reasons they failed to make it past their first season. Get your race helmet on and buckle in. It's Past Gas. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about forts. One and done. You one and done. You're done. After one. <laughs> wow. That was a one-and-done intro. Thank you very much, James. You're welcome, dude. Anything for you. Have <laughs> Thank you. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm curious with this theme. Is there, is there anything in your life that you've uh, only done one-and-done? Have any instances of that? School. School? I went to kindergarten. I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're a kindergarten dropout? Yeah. So with like these scripts and stuff, what I do is... I have my girlfriend read them to me over and over and over yeah. in the days leading up to the recording session, uh-huh. and I memorize them. Wow. Because I don't know how to read because I didn't go to school. I, I When I first started at Donut, I was like, James, why are you cutting and pasting? And he's like, I'm writing a script, dumbass. <laughs> yeah. And I realized yeah. that he didn't know how to spell any words, but he would bring up like a thesaurus and just copy and paste the words in. Mm-hmm. Until there is a whole script written. Listen, yeah, I would have Google. I would just hit next, 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 and Google reads it out loud. 
<laughs> I don't. Wow. I never learned how to read or write or anything, but I did learn how to share. I did learn how to snack, and I did learn how to nap, and I did <laughs> learn how to get my mom to pick me up. Well, those are all very important life skills, but this is not a self-help podcast. Everybody, welcome to Past Gas. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by... the uh, We got Joe Weber. Keep it G! And kindergarten valedictorian, James Pumphrey. <laughs> Big old lap full of ribs. <laughs> that's, a, that's a reference to the... Um, the D-list that James and I shot yesterday, we were testing the hardest foods to eat while driving, and ribs was one of them. Um, yeah, ribs, not super hard, definitely messy to eat in a car, but it makes up for it because it's hilarious looking. Yes. Did you test like uh, chestnuts and like uh, we did other hard foods to eat? We did chicken wings with ranch. We did ribs. We did king crab legs. Uh, we did cereal. Cereal yeah, was big, funny. Big bowl of car. cereal. Yeah. yeah oh, that one. is funny. Big old lap full of ribs. <laughs> and some other ones. Some other ones that you're going to have to watch the video to find out. So D-list if you haven't seen Wasn't it. Wasn't there a donut video a long time ago that it was like when we were still doing viral videos of James eating a burrito in the back seat of a drift car or something like no, that? Spaghetti. Oh. <laughs> and then I also shaved my face. That's terrifying to me. I, yeah. The worst part of that was uh, the mouthwash got in my eyes. Ooh. Oh, God. Ooh, minty fresh. Yeah. Ouch. Oh. Mouthwash to the eye is better than crab legs to the eye. Those things oh, are sharp, man. They're pokey. And it's better than fondue skewer to the eye. Ow. Yeah. Hey, don't give it away. Don't give it away, James. <laughs> I think it's uh, probably going to air by the time this goes out. Oh, I hope so. All right. Well, anyway. Check out that video. I just realized we were we were we're doing one season wonders this episode, and we were just singing the story of a girl by Nine Days. I don't know any other Nine Days songs. No, me neither. Me neither. What if they did like a like an adult contemporary cover of like Judith by A Perfect Circle? I don't know that song. Oh. <laughs> you always, there's always these new metal references that you have from like 2004. First of all, I don't think they're a new metal band. I don't think. <laughs> A perfect circle is a new metal band. Uh, what what would you what would you call them? I like I prog don't know, rock. Prog rock, definitely. I mean, like it's it's. Uh, what about post new metal? No, nah, I don't even think Tool is new metal. Would you consider them Tool? No, new metal? Tool's not new metal. Tool is definitely prog rock. Yeah, Tool uh, with a with a hint of math rock in there too. Yeah, ten twenty six time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, speaking of ten twenty six, let's yeah. Let's 1026 right into the script, huh? Let's yeah. do it. Okay. The teams we're talking about today have some varying levels of success. While none stuck around, some of them were ahead of their time or simply ran out of funding. But which team was the worst? Well, meet Andrea Moda, a team that participated in nine World Championship Grand Prix, but only managed to qualify once. This story begins in 1991, when Enzo Coloni decided to dump his Coloni F1 team. In swooped Andrea Sassetti, an Italian shoe magnate who thought 8 million pounds could bring some soul to the team. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> he changed the name from Coloni to Andrea Moda, named after his fashion business, and decided to kick things off by producing a brochure of his new car that featured a shadowy nude female saxophonist nice hell yeah you don't really see nudity and the saxophone mixed together too often so and it's a crime <laughs> it's because i think it seeing someone's diaphragm and they're all their saxophone muscles when they're naked Dude, is not you're tripping you're tripping you're tripping what? why saxophone is the sexiest instrument and naked <laughs> is the sexiest outfit <laughs> Well, anyway, Sassetti quickly lined up a new 72-degree angle V10 engine made by Judd. Okay, they're a manufacturer of racing and engines. And Dallara Gearbox, which was the same company used by Ferrari that year. They used this combination in the back of an existing Coloni C4 chassis. Unfortunately, when the team arrived in South Africa for round one of the 1992 season, 
There are protests that Andrea Moda was technically a new team and thus required to pay a $100,000 fee as a new entrant. Sassetti assumed that he had merely inherited Coloni, uh, despite a new power train and new name for the team, but a verdict was soon reached. Coloni had sold his team's equipment, but not his entry, and without paying the entrance fee, Andrea Moda was removed from the event. Sassetti was angry, but left the race thinking this could give him the opportunity to design his own chassis before the next race in two <laughs> weeks. I mean, yeah. how hard could it be? It's You got two full weeks. That's, that's one week per two wheels. <laughs> it's like two motorcycles with a little house in the middle. Sassetti <laughs> <laughs> brought prototype designs. Oh, bot. Sassetti bought prototype designs from the SimTech design company and set his mechanics to work. The Andrea Moda team, plus some temp mechanics due to the tight turnaround, worked feverishly to build the two new chassis, dubbed the S921. However, by the time the completed chassis were sent to Mexico two weeks later, Sassetti flippantly withdrew their entry, citing extenuating circumstances caused by freight delays. This pissed off everyone who worked around the clock to get their work done, as well as his two drivers, Alex Caffey and Enrico Bertaggia, who were furious they had to sit out their second race of the season. Sassetti then pulled the ultimate egomaniac card and fired his drivers. Hmm. Thus, instead of preparing to build two chassis in two weeks, Andrea Moda would need to find two drivers as well. And somehow he pulled it off and hired Roberto Moreno and Perry McCarthy, but their driver troubles didn't end there. McCarthy's super license was revoked before pre-qualifying at Interlagos in Brazil, so Moreno was left as the team's sole driver for the Brazilian Grand Prix. Moreno was 15 seconds off the pre-qualifying pace in practice and thus disqualified from participating. There's a certain speed threshold you have to meet. Yeah. And they did not. Otherwise, it's dangerous. You can't have like a super slow car in track. Yeah, sorry, Grandma. Maybe next year. This feels like a team that run by Homer Simpson. <laughs> and like Bart's the driver. <laughs> oh, so it's like a season 23 episode? Uh-huh. Well, anyway, right after the Brazilian Grand Prix, McCarthy was given his super license back and was ready to race. However, Bertaggia, one of the original drivers, came crawling back to Sassetti with a million dollars of sponsorship money. Ever the fickle rich guy, Sassetti wanted to replace McCarthy with Bertaggia, but was told that he had used up his allocated number of driver changes. So basically, Sassetti had two cars, one of which barely ran and the other that couldn't qualify, and a driver he didn't want. What followed, though, were two practice sessions at both Barcelona and San Marino, in which both cars' engines cut out. And then finally, finally, Moreno qualified in Monaco, of all places. The team was thrilled. Pop the champagne, play the anthem, and then watch as the engine cuts out after only 11 laps. Oof. Big oof. Big time oof. But guess what, guys? This crazy story that I'm telling you gets even crazier. Before the next race in Canada, a suspected case of arson destroyed Sassetti's Italian discotheque. Oh, and, no, not my Italian discotheque! <laughs> and as he my Italian discotheque! Well, James, as he was we fleeing the flames, a gunman shot at him. <laughs> yeah. And to make matters somehow worse... The owner showed up in Montreal to learn that while his two chassis were there, the engines hadn't made their flight. Oh. <laughs> That's a bad year. How does that happen? Even after the doom... Because they, they the engines were partying the night before. And they woke up <laughs> I guess so. Uh, they were at the discotheque. Uh, even after the Doom team borrowed an engine from the Brabham team, Moreno still couldn't hit a qualifying pace. The team returned to Europe and set off for the French Grand Prix. However, on their way to the race, a blockade built by striking lorry drivers rerouted the main roads throughout France. While all the other teams resorted to the back roads and made it on time, Andrea Moda, perhaps predictably, was the only team to never show up. Lorry is British for a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch I'm of a toilet drivers. I'm were. a lorry yeah. driver, mate. 
<laughs> my grandpa, my dad was a real big lorry driver, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Took big poops. <laughs> and as you can guess, the rest of the season went pretty much the same way for Andrea Moda. Andrea Moda appeared at Silverstone with virtually no sponsorship money, and they couldn't make it past practice there or in Germany or Hungary. However, the pinnacle of their failed season occurred in Belgium when halfway through the race weekend, the Belgian police arrested Sassetti on <laughs> allegations of fraud. And with that, it was a spectacular end to an awful, awful season. Just kidding. We got a cherry on top for you. Both Judd and Delara, the makers of the engine and the gearbox respectively, bowed out of building engines for Formula One in 1993, the very next season. Coincidence? You decide. I think I'm going to use a really under, underused word right now. But what a maroon. What a maroon. Is like man. a straight up maroon, dude. Just a clown. He just doesn't. It's it's one of those rich guys that's like, yeah, I could uh, compete against car manufacturers. I feel like I know this guy. Like I know versions of this guy. Yeah. It's not a surprise at all that he owns a discotheque. Yeah, a discotheque and like a ugly fashion brand. I yeah. think there's a certain type of rich guy that like is moderately successful. Like this guy owned a club and a fashion brand, but he thinks that he could like get to that next level of success, uh -huh. you know? And what's yeah. what I mean, what a bigger sign of success. There's like no other bigger indication than like having a Formula One team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he, he just lacks he just lacks discipline. Lacks discipline. And it's just the ego is like free. Like he d thinks he can do anything. Or yeah, it's like an unearned confidence kind of thing. Okay. Like you have a brand and you, you have a shoe brand and a club. Like yeah. what makes you think that you can run one of the most like demanding and sophisticated like sports <laughs> like operations? Nuanced. Yeah. Like, yeah. yo, Gordon Murray doesn't own a discotheque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like John, John Williams, John Williams does not own a discotheque. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. It's like when Iron Man, it's like when Tony Stark hopped into the F1 car in Iron Man 2. It's like, you can't drive that. You can't drive that, Tony Stark. Come on, Tony Stark. You got a, you, you got a guy. You, you're paying oh, a no, guy. Oh, it's, no, it's the wrestler. What? The wrestler's got you. What, flying around in a, a, in a trillion-dollar mechanical suit that shoots lasers out of its hands isn't enough for you? You got to take away that guy's job, too? Screw you, Tony Stark. Screw you, Tony Stark. No respect. Anyway. Yeah. Let's move on. While Andrea Moda could pride themselves on their wild antics, Life Racing Engine's single season in 1990 goes down as perhaps the most pointless and uncompetitive team on record. Take that, Haas. Oh, burn. Ooh. Ooh. You traitors. <laughs> <laughs> to understand how screwed this team was from the jump, we have to travel back two years earlier to the 1988 first racing car. This is all caps first. While first never made it to the F1 track, they had been competing as part of Formula 3000 since 1987. And the failures is that that's probably the year Joe was born, huh? Uh, no, I was one by then. I, I had already graduated college. By then. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and the failures of their first Formula One build convinced them to stay in their comfort zone. Then, Life Racing Engines did something very smart and bought First's prototype. There's a great deal of technical information on why the car wasn't well designed, but perhaps the most helpful is that it was described by its own designer as nothing more than an interesting flower pot. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's being honest about your work right there. But what they don't tell you is he described everything as a flower pot. Yeah, he got hit in the head, and he was like, that's an ugly flower pot. That's a loud flower pot. And like he points to his wife. He's like, that's a sexy flower Ooh, pot. Yeah. He's like Hodor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, we should have yeah, put that in the script. But yeah, that actually, that's 100% true. Uh, so back to life racing. The team was founded by Ernesto Vita, from whose surname the team's name was derived. Ah, Vita wanted. I get it. Vita. Vita, life. life. Living la vida loca. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what that means, Nolan? Living the crazy life. Yeah, freaking partying with Ricky Martin, man. Yeah, dude. I party, I party with Ricky Martin about once a month. It's pretty that, sweet. That <laughs> does sound pretty fun. Mm -hmm. We do like uh, 
B12 yeah, <laughs> and run like yeah. miles and miles on the beach. It's awesome. Non turmeric route. Yeah, that's what we call partying when you're in your 30s. <laughs> Vita wanted to enter Formula One to show off the team's in-house W12 Whoa. engine. Heck yeah, which was designed to make an engine as compact as a V8 while generating the power of a V12. Wow. The team just needed a chassis to put it in. And as we learned in our last story, <laughs> that's not always easy. Mm-mm. What resulted was the Life L190, a car that for the entire season could never manage more than a lap or two before something broke. At Imola, driver Bruno Giacomelli was timed at 424 seconds off the eventual <laughs> pole time. What? Wow. How many minutes is that? Yeah, that's, was, that sucks. But, I mean, this car looks great, man. Uh, it's a beautiful car. It wasn't until Portugal that the team ditched the W12 experiment, opting to replace the engine with a Judd V8. To the amateur team's horror, the engine cover wouldn't even fit over the Judd. While the car got back on track in Spain, it was still 18 seconds off pre- in pre-qualifying. Jeez. And Vita wisely gave up. His engine had only attracted ridicule. Not the marketing bump he had expected. And the L190 with the W engine ended up being a car that could only take an L. Oh, nice. It's a good looking yeah. car, though. It looks like one of those uh, late 80s Ferraris. It's got uh, a very pointy nose. Oh, it's a pointy boy for sure. Yeah. But man, it kind of like it makes me want like F1 now. You know, there's like a very there's you know specific engine specifications like this i mean this era has been like you know turbocharged v6s like that's like that's the only engine you can run but like it makes me wish that like teams could just like make whatever kind of engines they wanted yeah yeah Yeah. i mean they probably all you know they probably all would still make a hybrid turbo v6 yeah at some point because that'd just be like whoever was fastest in that first season you know yeah it would be cool if they like uh regulated it in a different way like they had emissions standards or something oh. it's like as long as you stayed under like this displacement and we're gonna put a like a sensor on your exhaust we're gonna check your emissions every race <laughs> yeah. like you can do whatever you want they'd probably be mostly electric well you gotta charge those systems though you gotta charge those systems you know don't even get me started on charging systems i gotta charge my systems that's my impression of Tony Stark. Hey, watch out, Hulk. I gotta go back to the lab and charge my system. Great. One thing you don't know about me, Hulk, I'm always charging my systems. That's the secret, Bruce Banner. I'm always charging my system. <laughs> It's common to see Formula One drivers move into the constructorship space, going from drivers to to makers, right? But there are many skeletons along the road to victory, as not every driver who attempted to move to constructing succeeded. Chris Amon, widely regarded as one of the best F1 drivers to never win a championship, is a crucial example. Chris Amon, widely regarded as the only skeleton to ever drive F1. (laughs) Chris Amon was a New Zealander, Kiwi, who after a quick rise to the top in his homeland, was picked up by English racing driver Reg Parnell to drive for Formula One in 1962. At 19 years old, Amon is still one of the youngest debuts to this day. Although he did well enough, it wasn't until 1966 that he caught the world's attention by partnering with Bruce McLaren to victory at Le Mans in a Gulf Ford GT40. That's right, he was one of those guys. Mm. He was then invited to meet with Enzo Ferrari and signed with the team for the 1967 season. He spent three unsuccessful years driving for Ferrari, then skipped over to race for March, Matra, and Techno to mild success. So this is I've never heard of Techno before. Yeah, me neither. I wonder what they're called now. Eamon was described by former Ferrari technical director Mauro Forgieri as possessing, quote, all the qualities to be a world champion, but bad luck just wouldn't let him be. So after a disappointing season in 1973, Chris decided to pivot and race under the banner of Chris Amon Racing, a team formed around his basic principle. Quote, I want to keep my team simple, 
as possible. And I don't want to get too caught up in the organizational side of things. I just want to drive. I want to provide myself with a sophisticated chassis, a Cosworth engine, and a small enthusiast collection of people and small flightless birds and koalas <laughs> within the team. That's a little artistic license on that quote. No, never, never. The team Eamon put together was exactly that, minus the flightless birds and the koala bears. The team started with decent funding and a quality staff, but unfortunately, it wasn't too long before everything unraveled. That's such a good hook, dude. (laughs) I am so invested. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready for this? We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. For the time period, Eamon's car was incredibly forward-thinking. Instead of having multiple field tanks surrounding the driver, Eamon and his head designer, Gordon Fowle, became the first F1 car to install a single central unit between the driver and the engine, which gave the car a lower center of gravity and put the driver in a more forward position. The team also experimented with titanium torsion bars in the suspension instead of coil springs and had inboard brakes, like an like a old Corvette. And finally, Eamon painted the AF-101, named to combine Eamon and Fowl, nice, a sky blue simply because he wanted it to stand out on the track. I think sky blue is a criminally underrepresented color in motorsports. Yeah, that's what our, our baseball team's color is, sky blue. There you go, the, the sliders. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. According to Eamon himself, despite the technological advances... The AF-101 was revealed to be a project far too ambitious for his finances. He was confident that his testing would have been enough to develop the car, but every time he tried to drive it, something broke, end quote. I'm not sure what source that's from, but that is a quote. In simple terms, the Amon car was too expensive to test and maintain, and the team continuously missed qualifying speeds. And thus, the Amon racing team went the way of Chris Amon's career, Surrounded by an air of bad luck. Dang. That's a shame. That's yeah. a shame. He's another one of those guys that is not as successful, but he still hung out with everyone. <laughs> like yeah. Enzo Ferrari. And everyone like respected him. Like, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, this guy's like good. Ah, oh, man, you just can't catch a break, you know? Yeah. I mean, his flaps didn't work out. <laughs> everyone was trying to get the flaps back then. The car looks really cool, though. Another driver turned constructor was Willibert Cowson. Willibert Cowson. Willibert. <laughs> Willibert Cowson. That's a name. Uh huh. Though he was somehow even less successful than Chris Amon when it came to building cars. Cowson had been a stellar sports car driver who had come in second at Le Mans in 1970, but always dreamed of going into team ownership. 
In the late 70s, Kalsen purchased the Elf Renault 2J Formula 2 cars, which drove well in 1976 at the hands of Michel Leclerc and future champion Jean-Pierre Jabouli. For 1977, the F2 cars were renamed Kalsen Renaults, with Leclerc driving alongside Klaus Ludwig, a German guy, obviously. Leclerc <laughs> took pole for the first race at Silverstone, and it seemed as though Kalsen's team would be a success. LOL, not. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were serious for a second. No, they're not. The team started making modifications to the chassis, and each time the car came out worse than before. I can relate. <laughs> Leclerc hurtled down the rankings and even failed to qualify in some events. Ludwig managed to land in the top 10 a few times before he quit, and his car was subsequently driven by Jose Dolem, Vittorio Brambilla, and Alain Prost. Hmm. Yet no one could overcome the clear engineering failures. Not even Alain Prost. <laughs> The doctor. It is not a good chassis. I am a grown man. I am a man. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a baby. But Kalsen was unwilling to accept defeat and was determined to enter F1 in 1978. After a deal fell through, Kalsen opted to build his own Formula One car <laughs> for the 1979 season. You know, because he's smart. That's, dude, like, that's so dumb. Like the hubris, you know? Yeah. Just unbridled ego. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Kalsen hired Klaus Kapitza from Ford, as well as Porsche engineer Kurt Quebec. However, manufacturing proved to be a difficult task. You think? The team only had one metal worker <laughs> and three mechanics to build the car. And between them, zero experience in Formula oh One design, God. aerodynamics, oh, or out. construction. Great. We have more mechanics to do money pit. <laughs> Uh, the one thing Kalsen got right was the concept that ground effect would be the way of the future, as opposed to the 70s wing cars, and he convinced Kapitza to design a Lotus 79 lookalike. Kalsen wanted to use Alfa Romeo engines considering his own success in Alphas, but later had to opt for a Cosworth DFV, which is not a bad engine at all, yeah, and Alfa decided a, to join the grid themselves. That's, a great that's actually an upgrade. That was yeah. probably the right move, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The original Kalsen featured a Hewland FGA gearbox with only five gears, even though some Cosworth teams used six-speed transmissions, and the team had a contract with Goodyear, but since they were late to the grid and only had a little cash, they received the leftover rubber that nobody wanted. Oh, God. Huh. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that, like, I don't... That's pathetic. And then they tried to make the tires better, but each time they got worse. <laughs> <laughs> Every mechanic chewed a pack of gum and stuck the gum to the tires before the race. Some had no experience with gum before. <laughs> I'm supposed to swallow it, right? <laughs> no! <laughs> Finally, the inexperienced engineers neglected to consider the pitch and dive phenomenon of a car under braking, which rendered ground effects, well, no. So, from what, I, what I'm getting from that is that the the angle of their ground effects wasn't correct, basically. Uh -huh. So like when the car like the nose, you know, the weight transfers the front, the nose is diving. Yeah. Is that wow. Okay. Yeah, that's something you want to consider. Yeah. So it was back to the drawing board for them. A second prototype was produced, made significantly bulkier and longer to fit a larger fuel tank. Driver Harold Ertel crashed the car during testing at Hockenheim, claiming that the brakes had failed. After an enraged Kalsen discovered that an amateur cameraman had filmed the accident, uh, he bought the reel from him for 100 Deutschmarks. <laughs> so, needless to say, things were going well. Now, around this time, it became clear that Kalsen was the seat that drivers had to avoid, and the FISA was reluctant about even allowing Kalsen into the 1979 championship. But, the latter's decision most likely had to do with Kalsen's $30,000 entrance fee check <laughs> bouncing. Ugh. Oh, my God. Embarrassing. No, try it again. Try it again. <laughs> it's it's a check. I just used my card at the gas station. Like, why is yeah, that? This is a <laughs> check. Ugh. Let me call my bank. <laughs> After the check bounced, uh, do you have Apple Pay? <laughs> <laughs> 
After the check bounced, driver Patrick Neve left the team along with his sponsors. So Calson turned around and blamed the sponsors for the team's financial problems. And then the sponsors denied that they had ever worked with the ill-fated team. I don't even know that guy. That's awesome. <laughs> In January of 1979, driver Gianfranco Brancatelli signed on to pilot the singular Calson seat. And after making adjustments to the second prototype, the Calson team finally made its debut at the Aurora F1 round at Zolder with a car named the WK004, which stood for the whitest kids you know. <laughs> oh, that was a great year for whitest kids you know. <laughs> it was, really. They were probably founded in 04. Anyway, the WK004 had a rear wing mounted in the traditional position, and the whole chassis was nine inches longer than its first iteration. It was clear that Cowson had given up on trying to master ground effects, reverting to the wing car concept instead. After an unremarkable debut, Team Cowson entered the first world championship at the Spanish GP, having finally paid their entrance fee. Thing looks like a Batmobile. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty like a lame Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. However, their late entry to the championship left Cowson without a pit. Ba- God, guys, they don't what? have a pit. Oh my <laughs> God. And Branchitelli was left to qualify with old Goodyear race tires rather than qualifiers. It was only with Bernie Eccleston's help that Cowson brokered a deal with Lotus to get half of a pit garage, but it was no use. Unsurprisingly. Brancatelli was the slowest of the 27 entries with only 24 spots on the grid. At the next race in Belgium, Brancatelli's results got no better. He was the slowest of 28 entrants. Over 13 seconds behind Jacques Lefice Legier on pole and 6.65 seconds behind the 27th place car. Oh my God. Finally, (laughs) acknowledging the elephant in the room, the elephant being a shitty car and a lack of funding, Houston finally decided to relinquish his dream of running a successful Formula One team but not before trying one last time to buy some used Lotus 79s, only to find that he was outbid by a different team owner. That's just how it goes, man. You know what they say. That's F1, baby. <laughs> that is. I think, that is F1, I think this is important that we highlight these stories because so many times we're just talking about, like, this team didn't think they were going to win and, and they put gave everything they got and they got, you know, like a decent place. These are like all the stories you never hear about like how many failures happen in Formula One. Yeah. Like these are the worst ones, obviously, but most people fail. Mm-hmm. In general, <laughs> most people fail. What an uplifting and an optimistic state. <laughs> Listen, you should try, but you're probably going to fail. Yeah, but that doesn't mean right. you shouldn't try again. Well, if you fail, you should definitely try again. Yeah. You can't give up. You got to you got to learn from your mistakes instead of just going uh, about it like a bootleg Richard Branson. Yeah, you can't be a bootleg and... Richard Branson. By the 1970s, the Eiffeland von Wagenbau company had been a well-known caravan manufacturer in Germany for several decades, run by Gunther Henrici. Eager to expand his success into even more success, Henrici began sponsoring F two and F3 teams and signed on to back the established F1 sports car driver Rolf Stommelen, who had put in some promising drives during the 1970 and 1971 seasons. Then in 1972, Henrici and his team manager Heinz Koblaschek approached the self-described visionary designer Luigi Colani to build a Gee, chassis <laughs> for Stommelen during the 1972 Grand Prix season. Wow. A lot of names. Good, good job, man. Yeah. That's a you lot of multi-syllabic names. I would have, I would have stumbled on Rolf. <laughs> Kalani's philosophy on design was eccentric, to say the least, as the designer was absolutely obsessed with all things round. <laughs> I can, I can relate. Hey, you know what I mean? Hey, hey, that, hey. that money I mean? pit got me excited yesterday. Hey. <laughs> what is that? A plate? What is that? A standard plate? Nice. <laughs> He's just losing his mind as cars go by on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, all things round. Kalani proclaimed proudly the earth is round, all the heavenly bodies are round, they all move. On round or elliptical orbits. Why should I 
join the straying mass who want to make everything angular. <laughs> I'm going to pursue Galileo Galilei's philosophy. My world is also round. He sounds like an Austin Powers villain. <laughs> yeah. This is at a time when every, when like wedge cars were just coming up. So I'm sure yeah, this is a it. response to that. Yeah. Despite his uh, somewhat self-congratulatory nature, Kalani was actually good at this round guru thing. Over the years, he had designed Fiat's, the Kalani Alpha, which is the first sports car to lap the old Nürburgring in under 10 minutes. The BMW 700, which was the first monocoque sports car, the Kalani GT kit car, and the Mazda Miata MX-5. Whoa. Very interesting. Outside of cars, he designed furniture, a teapot. He raced catamarans. He designed a plastic sports (laughs) airplane. He designed the What's Canon a sports t- airplane, <laughs> like a racing plane. I don't know, uh, like a plane that you use for sports. Yeah, you play football. <laughs> Are you paying with attention, it? dude. Yeah. Oh, you is that the, that's the, that's what the dude perfect guys dropped a basketball out of the sports plane? And- <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Yeah, the perfect. Guy that, the guy that looks like Bradley Cooper was like, I, I love flying. Um, <laughs> it's a plane with mesh and a number on it. Uh, what? He also designed the Canon T90 camera, uh, an assortment of pens, Sony headphones, <laughs> Swiss Air uniforms, frames, jewelry, a computer mouse, cosmetics, glasses, more computers, pianos, microphones, and even bathroom showers. This guy did it all, and all of them had delicious curves, okay? Dude, I'm completely 180 guy. on this guy i yeah, love this guy i was kind of goofing on him before i came up this with guy a, rules he's pretty cool i came up with a good name for his autobiography my yeah. curvy life <laughs> that's my instagram bio welcome <laughs> to my curvy life <laughs> kalani turned his mind to f1 bodywork, inspired more by instinct than technical skills what he came up with turned everyone's head The first prototype featured a swooping one-piece rear wing, a one-piece cockpit incorporating an airbox in the front, a creative one-piece front wing with additional cooling ducts, and a periscope-inspired mirror that rose right up from the front of the cockpit. While the machine looked snazzy on the outside, the components were basically a March 721 F1 car with a Cosworth V8 and Goodworth tires. Unfortunately for Kalani, who liked to brag to the media that other designers didn't understand aerodynamics. <laughs> oh, God. Initial testing showed that while the car was fast, it did not generate enough downforce, and the front and rear wings were causing overheating issues. By the time the Eiffeland Type 21 appeared in South Africa for the second round of the 1972 World Championship, Kalani's designs were all but stripped from the car, except for the cockpit bodywork and the periscope mirror. Stommelman put on a solid performance behind the wheel and ended the weekend in 13th place, two laps down. Changes to the car were made before the next race in Spain, and the Type 21 arrived sporting a predominantly blue color scheme, a single-plane rear wing, additional small side pods, and a chisel-styled nose cone with small front wings. In Spain, Stommelman maintained a respectable 16th place until an accident occurred just 15 laps into the Grand Prix. Stommelman continued to impress during the season. He saw 10th at Monaco, not bad, 11th in Belgium, and 16th in France, and 10th at Brands Hatch. Good for him. But unfortunately, the team's relative success was not to continue. Henrici's investment had not helped his caravan sales in the way he expected, and in turn, he sold the business to someone with zero interest in racing. Like so many other one-season wonders, the funds to run Eiffeland dried up and the team decided to call it quits after Stommelman experienced engine troubles during the Austrian Grand Prix. I got to see what this thick car looks like. It's the Periscope rearview mirror is pretty crazy. It's a really cool-looking car. At first, I was like, that would get in your way, but that's basically what F1 cars have nowadays with the halo. Whoa, this is very strange-looking. Right? What's the prototype look like, though? So the blue ones are what they ended up with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kalani and, F1 and then- car. Is it the white the white one? Is whoa the white one's it's crazy. It's gotta be that hell. white one. Yeah. Well, they're they're the same car. So the white one was like when it first came out. Yeah. That like overheated and stuff. Yeah, I could see why. That looks like a hot like a Hot Wheels it does. car. It looks like but a dude, Hot Wheels car. Look at the car. green one. Yeah, the green one is wild. Yeah. Wow. All right, Kalani. Maybe you maybe you're all right. 
I'm going to go on eBay after this and see if I can find a Kalani F1 car to hang on the wall. <laughs> As any Formula One fan knows, racing expensive, two-of-a-kind cars is a billionaire's game. Much like hunting the most dangerous game of all, humans. Okay. That's a billionaire's game, too. <laughs> hunting humans from a helicopter. As any Formula One fan knows, <laughs> racing expensive two-of-a-kind cars is a billionaire's game, so it's understandable that the many first-season teams have fallen by the wayside due to financial issues. Others have become clear examples of how not to run a team, like Eric Broadley's Lola. Lola was founded by Broadley in 1958 and had been building cars for other Formula One teams since the 60s. And then, all of a sudden, in 1996, Broadley put together a $35 million sponsorship deal with MasterCard with the aim of entering the World Championship in 1998. The MasterCard deal was said to be innovative in that it depended upon using Lola's racing activities to draw in customers to the credit card program. But MasterCard pushed Lola to begin racing in 1997, which meant that the design would have to be fast-tracked. You know, oh. something that is very good for machines as deeply complicated as a Formula One car. Oh, yeah. Despite the limitations, Broadly confidently claimed that MasterCard Lola had the experience, the commitment, and the desire to succeed in F1. We have taken the best ideas from specialists in the wind tunnel, aerodynamics, vehicle dynamics, and the like to produce the final machine. His words never quite matched up to reality. A deal was struck to run Ford ZTEC RV8s and Bridgestone tires, and Vincenzo Suspiri and Ricardo Rosset signed on to drive. When the T97-30 launched in February, there was only time for brief testing before the cars were shipped to Australia for the first round of the 1997 championship. However, even that hurried testing showed that the MasterCard Lola cars were going to be slow, which is the opposite of what you want in this game. <laughs> Mm -hmm. The T97-30 couldn't generate enough mechanical or aerodynamic grip and thus couldn't get the tires to the correct temperatures. Suspiri and Rosset reported that the car had too much drag in a straight line and couldn't generate enough downforce through turns, compromising the cornering speed as well. And as a result, neither car qualified to race in the Australian Grand Prix. Wow. The drivers headed to Brazil with expectations that the cars would receive new parts and stronger development, as well as an in-house built V10 engine. However, once they arrived, they read the newspapers that their team had entirely collapsed. Oh, God. Lola's Grand Prix team had built up six million pounds in debt, half of which was owed to its parent company, Lola Cars. The sponsorship program with MasterCard had not helped at all. Lola Cars went into receivership and was only saved when Martin Bahrain bought the company from Broadley. And that, as they say, was that. Not good. Yeah, that guy didn't even design any pens. Yeah. It sucks that he was in Formula One forever. And then just because like MasterCard wanted him to hurry this shit up, like he kind of ruined his name. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, man, credit card companies, you can't trust them. Yeah. Do you think, do you know, like in, in donut meetings, it's, it's impossible to not use the phrase like wheelhouse mm -hmm. and up to speed. And every time there's like a little bit of a cringe when you say it, you're like, oh, I, this is the best way to say this, but I know it's, you know, this is our, what we do. Do you think MasterCard is, is like the same way when they're like, give me some credit. Yeah, we 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 have a lot of interest in this. In the <laughs> like, let's let's charge ahead with a design. <laughs> uh, <ugh>. Oh God! <laughs> well, the Mastercard deal was just he got a Mastercard. <laughs> and it wasn't even a race car. It wasn't even it. like a platinum. It was like a reserve sapphire. Yeah, he got, yeah, got a Mastercard sapphire, and bought a race car with it. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When introducing newcomers to Formula One, one question tends to get asked, where is the Lamborghini? From 1989 to 1993, Lamborghini worked the F1 grid as an engine supplier and for one ill-fated season as a chassis maker themselves as Lambo Modena in 1991. In 1987, Chrysler bought Lamborghini and Chrysler president Lee Iacocca, Lee Iacocca, Lee Iacocca wanted them to enter Formula One as an engine constructor. He appointed former Ferrari team manager Daniel Audetto to oversee a new group called Lamborghini Engineering and brought on Mauro Forgieri, who you might remember from earlier in this episode, who had been instrumental in the 1970s and 1980s at Ferrari. In 1989, Lamborghini participated as an engine supplier for both the La Russe and Lotus teams as they were the only makers as they were the only maker of the V12 engine at the time, everyone else on the grid had V8s. Lotus had a kind of crummy chassis, and LaRousse had an excellent season. In 1991, Lambeau looked to expand their influence and opted not to continue working with either Lotus or LaRousse. One of their new takers was Legere, and the other was a new team called GLAS, financed by Mexican businessman Fernando Gonzalez Luna to the tune of $20 million. Lamborghini was excited to expand its contributions to include GLAS's chassis design, a first for the company, and got to work. Forgeri and Mario Tolentino designed a prototype, and by the summer of 1990, it was ready to be tested. The one problem? Well, Luna disappeared with the money. Despite this $20 million financial hole, Lamborghini were determined to move forward with their engine and chassis. Toward the end of the year, the Lamborghini 291 with a distinctive dark blue chassis was tested, and the team was entered for the 1991 World Championship as Scuderia Modena SPA, rather than just Lamborghini, which was confusing for everybody. Allegedly, Lamborghini didn't want to put their name on the car, as the car maker didn't want to affect its brand image, win or lose, but fans still most commonly refer to the ill-fated constructor as Lambo Modena. Which brings us back to the opening of the show. Lambo Modena hired two strong drivers, Nicola Larini and Eric Vandepol, and their season started off with a bang. Unfortunately, it was all downhill from there. By the time the team reached Silverstone, the eighth Grand Prix in the season, Lambo's record was a seventh, a ninth, a technical disqualification, and 13 did not qualify. Sheesh. Wow. Yeah. Sad sheesh. Yeah, at the same time, Lambo Modena had run up huge debts and was in money trouble as early as the Canadian Grand Prix, which was the fifth race on the schedule, partially due to their inability to track much sponsorship. The rest of the season shook out similarly with a smattering of did not qualifies and a single finish in 16th place at the Hungaro Ring. All in all, it was a disappointing season. The team ended its run with its maiden season as Fajeri thought it was best to concentrate on what Lamborghini did well, and that was making motors for other cars. Dang. Well, these teams all failed to succeed in Formula One. They each failed in their own way, like delicate, oil-filled snowflakes of disaster. Andrea Moda went totally off the rails thanks to their oddball, probably coked-out boss. Life and Cowson had equipment so janky they may have been better off building their cars from odds and ends collected from the trash island that lives in the Pacific. With top-of-the-line equipment and unsubstantial funding 
Eamon's eyes were bigger than his stomach. Eifenland flew too close to the sun with the Galileo-loving Kalani's designs. The only race MasterCard Lola won was rushing through development to the grid, and Lambo didn't have enough money to keep up after their disappointing first season. What we've learned today is perhaps something we've known all along. Competing in F1 is expensive. Building cars is hard. And it's a true miracle that anything ever works at all. That's true. Well said. It does make uh, like successful teams like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari you know, all that more impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. Speaking of Red Bull and Mercedes, are you following this pit stop? Oh uh, yeah, thing going on right now. That's kind of annoying. It's really stupid. Mercedes... So, is that for real? That like they're they're limiting how fast they can be. Yeah, Mercedes is pissed off that Red Bull has the world record for pit stops, and that's they actually like make up time in their pit stops. So they've put in a what is it called a discrepancy? A technical directive. A technical directive with the FIA. They can't be faster than two seconds. Is that it, basically? Yeah, and that's bull. That is like, that really. That's really stupid, and it's an insult to all the pit crews that practice so hard to get their times down. And it's so hypocritical because Mercedes, you know, last year, or the year before, was like, they're, everyone else is complaining because we're winning. If they want to compete, they should just be faster. And now they're losing, and they're complaining. Yeah, all racing teams are just babies. Yeah. <laughs> But I I understand it. You have to use every single ounce of leverage to your advantage. You have to find every loophole. It's going to happen where there's... Well, I think like every team should just like protest, except for Mercedes, of course. But like, it's just just so not sporting. It's so Mm -hmm. dumb. Yeah, it's not sporting. It's not. Well, what do you guys think? We have an email now. We finally uh, entered the 20th century, the late 20th century. We have an email. (laughs) Uh, it's passgas at donutmedia.com. Uh, send us an email. Let us know what you think about the Mercedes technical directive. And maybe we'll read one of your emails on air like this one from Sam. Big fan of the channel and the podcast. In fact, I think Pass Gas is a genius podcast and really helps me expand my car knowledge and history knowledge. Wow. <laughs> nice. Uh, I want to know how the Toyota... AE86 became so popular today. Was it Initial D? Those drift videos, it's racing success. I want to know how did it get the name that the car has today and if it helped other JDM legends get their spotlight in the US. I think you answered your own question. Sam, you're a lot smarter than you think, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> All of those things. Well, there was the there was the um Kaichi Suchia, Kaichi Suchia video, the the Plusby uh, drift mm-hmm. video, which um, kind of permeated, was like the beginning of drift culture almost, you know, or at least yeah. helped bring it to a more wider audience. And then rumor has it that Initial D was loosely based on his experiences and his life, like Takumi is Kichi. Yeah, is that a rumor though? Like I think well, I don't he's know. A, he was a te- technical consultant on the show. Yeah. yeah. But he the never, initial- he used to, he didn't deliver tofu. He delivered uh, machined parts for his dad. No, oh, no come on. Like, no, that's know, real. What? Oh. Dude, okay. I was writing an episode on Keiichi that never made it oh. to air. Well, then. So, yeah. Dang. Kaichi Suchia and I have a lot more in common than I thought before this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, Sam, thanks for listening. Thanks for your yeah. email, Sam. Um, I love having my ego inflated like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank right. you guys for listening. Uh, oh, am I doing the outro? Is that yeah, what's happening whoa. right now? What's yeah, this? Get uh, thanks for listening. Uh, please tell your friends and your family about this podcast if you liked it. Follow us on Instagram. Follow Nolan at nolan j sykes follow james at james pumphrey follow me at joe g weber and uh wink wink nation keep it juiced be kind rewind (laughs) (laughs) it's an audio format now no one's gonna know (laughs) 
<laughs> you are. Yeah. How do you, you turn into a sloth from Goonies? And then <laughs> are you gone? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that. And find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.